It's Friday, June 7th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. It was back in April that Walmart announced it was doubling down on robots in its stores to scan shelves and scrub floors, hoping to keep labor costs down and open up employees to more fulfilling work. Well, the rollout has happened and the results are mixed. The human workers are sometimes the ones that feel like machines. Customers have reportedly fallen asleep on one of the machines. Workers have to retrain the machines in some cases. And engineers have had to figure out creative ways to have robots announce themselves to customers so they aren't caught off guard. Drew Harwell, AI reporter for The Washington Post, joins us for how the robots are doing at Walmart. Next, YouTube has stepped into the hate speech minefield. Earlier this week, they announced three changes aimed at limiting the posting and spreading of hate speech content. Unfortunately for YouTube, the long-planned announcement came during an uproar over enforcement of its policies surrounding conservative host Steven Crowder and homophobic and racist insults he made against Vox's Carlos Maza. Ina Freed, chief technology correspondent at Axios, joins us for YouTube's new policies. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Hey, you know, a six foot robot is coming through. So they tried a lot of different noises and they ended up settling on like this clip of modified bird song that just sort of sounds like a little bit of a chirp. Joining us now is Drew Harwell, AI reporter for The Washington Post. It was back in April, I think, that Walmart announced that it was going to be doling out a bunch of robots to some of its stores in an effort to help make the lives better of the workers and and maybe offload some of the pressures there. They said that the workers would be doing a lot more fulfilling work and the robots were going to be doing a range of things, scrubbing floors, scanning aisles. So Walmart has rolled these out now and now we're starting to get a look at how it's working in the real world. A lot of the human workers saying they're starting to feel like the machines Tell us a little bit about the rollout for these robots. These robots are in every part of the Walmart Superstore. There's like 1,500 stores across the country that have them now. And there's some in the back room that kind of help offload boxes from a truck, sort of making it easier to sort for for the workers in the back. There's some patrolling the floors, uh, scrubbing the floors overnight. There's some that scan the shelves with this beam of light to see which products are out of stock or misplaced. And they all sort of come together as part of the self-checkout and kind of AI camera, huge network that is patrolling the super centers now. They've been having kind of a rocky start. You use an example of this Walmart in Georgia where the floor scrubbing robot, they nicknamed him Freddy for named for a janitor who got let go shortly after this thing rolled in there. And of course, they would nickname him after that guy. So how has that guy been working specifically? That one is, it's cleaning the floors. I mean, it looks like a big Zamboni and it's kind of doing the job that you would expect sort of a custodian or a janitor to do. And what's really interesting is these are being rolled in and taking little tasks from the human workers in a way that a lot of them didn't really expect. And, you know, I think workers in a lot of different workplaces, especially in manufacturing, they've sort of expected that robots would be taking little tasks way or maybe their whole job away. But it's this middle point where it's not all humans doing the work, but it's not all robots either. And, you know, they're kind of having to learn to interact with each other and get along in a way for them to keep the work going. With that little Zamboni in particular, they said that it's kind of suffered these nervous breakdowns. It needed increased training sessions, which we'll get to in a little bit. And the workers are just a little frustrated with them. 
even the the customers, how has the interaction been with some of these robots and the customers? Some of the customers are kind of freaked out from from talking to the Walmart associates. They they weren't really expecting these robots. I mean, I mean, you can tell from going into stores that self checkout, which is like a very small, simple element of like automation, how that is perceived by some people. Oh yeah, it can get, um, it can be cumbersome a lot of times. Yeah. Yeah. And so with some of these robots, the shelf scanning one is like six foot tall. It rolls around at very low speeds, creeps up. People who go to Walmart don't always expect to see that. And so it's kind of surprising for some people. And a lot of people said like it's kind of a fun element in the store. People are taking photos of them and talking to them and associate the human employees at Walmart are putting name tags on the robots. There's kind of a fun element to it. But some of the shoppers are also sort of like unnerved by them because they don't understand the capacity. What I mean, what is the robot? doing? What is it seeing? Can it talk to me? I mean, there's all these sort of new growing pains that shoppers and workers are having to learn as these automation efforts pick up. With that shelf scanning robot particularly, you said it's like six feet tall. It's kind of this looming figure if you're not expecting it. They actually experimented with a range of different noises to try to warn the customers that was coming. It's kind of it brings to mind stories about the Prius. You know, the car was so silent, they needed yeah. to add something extra so that pedestrians or whatever knew it was coming. So they tested some noises for this robot in, in particular to try to give people advance notice. We're like in a really interesting time for robotics. And I was able to sort of meet some of the roboticists in San Francisco who work on those shelf scanning robots. And in their lab, they have invented like a fake cereal aisle to test the robot on that. They built like a battering ram to test its ability to withstand <laughs> shoppers kicking it and, and knocking it over. And they also sort of played around with like what kinds of sounds and signals are we going to want to bake into the robot to communicate in its own little simple way to the humans around it to let them know, hey, I'm coming through the aisle. Don't run into me. Don't hurt me. Like, And so, you know, this is this is all new stuff, right? Like there's no real set guide for how humans and robots can interact. The sound thing was really interesting because some of these roboticists said like they wanted something that wasn't too urgent or too alarming. They didn't want some like ambulance siren, but they also needed it to be insistent enough to say like, hey, you know, a six foot robot is coming through. So they tried a lot of different noises and they ended up settling on like this clip of modified bird song that just sort of sounds like a little bit of a chirp. So just enough for you to know something is coming along, but hopefully not enough to like freak you out. Back to the auto C, which is that Zamboni thing, the the little mini janitor that scrubs the (laughs) floors. One of the things that caught my eye from your article was that it had needed regular training sessions and that Mm -hmm. the workers themselves often had to retrain the robots. Explain that to me, because that doesn't make sense to me. I I feel like the robot is put in place and it should do what it's programmed. How do the workers have to retrain these little robots? The important thing to know about robots is they're really not that smart yet. We talk about artificial intelligence, but they're not anywhere near how we think of intelligent motion. So, you know, they know how to stay within the lines of an aisle. These automatic cleaners can be trained to know which aisles are where, but they still have to be taught in in a way that any human student would be taught, like they have to be driven down the aisles a couple times first to learn the path. And they end up just following along that pattern. So it's not the robots independently knowing what to do. It's really just that they're pretty sophisticated tools that the humans can bend to their will and, and teach to how to do a certain thing. But that also makes them brittle, right? And they're easily confused. And so when Walmart changes how its aisles look or, you know, it's Christmas time and they have lots of different stuff or they have a 
store remodel some of the workers are talking about, they would have to retrain it. They'd have to drive the automatic cleaner Zamboni thing down the aisles once again. And so, you know, it's cool in that it can do some of these tasks, but it's also a little annoying, some of the workers said. They almost felt like babysitters for these robots. And so there's this almost level of discontent over, like, can't these things just figure it out already? Why do I have to add this onto all the other tasks I've already got? Since Walmart came on the scene, I mean, they've been leaders in the retail industry. They've changed the way a lot of things are done. For a long time, the criticism was they're getting rid of a lot of mom and pop shops. Now, with the ever-increasing technology and this notion of automation, obviously, it makes sense that they're leaders in this. But as we've been talking about, how are the workers now responding to this? It seems like they're frustrated by having to handle the robots. It's making their jobs a little more monotonous. One of the things that you mentioned in the article was some of these robots that scan the merchandise, let's say produce section or something. It'll ping a worker saying, hey, this needs to be filled up, but it puts the worker in a different place. Instead of walking the aisles, instead of addressing things as they happened, they're kind of just constantly being pinged with things that need to be paid attention to. It's just a different system for them. It's a new world, right? Like, you know, these robots are increasingly cheap and easy enough for companies to turn on. And so we're going to see these more and more, both in like a working scenario, but also sort of as you're shopping. And so the robots are having to learn, but we, we, the people are having to learn as well, what it's like. And this isn't just Walmart, right? This isn't, we're, we're starting to see these McDonald's is doing like self-serve kiosk and they're doing, robotics are coming more into hotel scenarios where maybe if you order room service, uh, like a little self-driving robot will bring you out your dinner or something. And so you're starting to see these more and more. We're starting to see them in the kind of the big retail scenarios like a Walmart where they're America's biggest private employer. They make a ton of money. It makes sense for them to invest in something and roll it out in a big way and invest like that. But I think we're going to start seeing that filter down more into lots of different types of businesses and smaller types of businesses because the allure of something that could be consistent and cheap will be really alluring to these companies. But, you know, there's also this worry about are these companies going to start seeing these robots as so intriguing that they start laying off workers or start putting workers into, like you said, I mean, different jobs with different tasks and different responsibilities. Some of the Walmart workers, they had gotten used to their job being full of lots of different tasks. Maybe they would walk the store at some point checking out shelves. Maybe they would be offloading from a truck. Maybe they would be helping customers. All all these sorts of different little tasks. But now some of those tasks are being taken over by the machines. And so the humans are starting to filter into just the tasks that people can do. And so from that, they're starting to feel like their jobs are feeling more automated in a way. And so I think that's an interesting side effect that we're seeing. You would expect these robots to come on and take all the monotony and all the drudgery, but really there are still lots of little things that humans are expected to do that, that they may prefer leaving somebody else. How do the executives of Walmart feel this is going and, and the future of automation for them? Everything we've heard from them is encouraging. The executives, including the CEO of Walmart, talks about these as being a game changer for them. They're proving that with the money they're spending, right? They're spending millions of dollars and investing in these projects, finding new robotic contractors to roll in new machines. And so, you know, I think the question is, are they going to continue seeing good results from these? Do they feel like some of these trade-offs are worth it? And where will the dividing line be? I mean, will we get to a point where Walmart is fully automated and it's all robots and no human workers? Or are we going to remain in this middle ground where different tasks are split up between people and machines? Drew Harwell, a AI reporter for the Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you.
And so they're saying, look, if you brush up against our hate speech rules, if you're posting borderline content, you're going to find yourself out of the program. This is the one that I think is most where the proof is in the pudding. Like it's easier to say that than to do that. Joining us now is Ina Freed, chief technology correspondent for Axios. We're going to be talking about YouTube. They stepped into this hate speech minefield earlier in the week. They changed some policies, three specific changes designed to limit the posting and spreading of hate speech on their platform. They've been promising some of these policies for a while now, and it kind of came up against some other little problem that they were having with a, a, a user named Steven Crowder. Let's start off with what the changes they made to their policies first. Sure. And these were changes that had been in the works for a while. So even though it happened at the same time as the stuff with Steven Crowder and Carlos Maza that we'll get into, this was not related to that. This was related to some stuff that they'd been saying for a long time. Hey, we need to improve the quality of YouTube, which is easy to say and hard to do. And so they're making a few changes. One is basically no more claims of group superiority. So they say, so you can't espouse white supremacy. You can't say men are better than women. And you can't also deny something that's been widely reported like the Holocaust or the Sandy Hook shootings. So a couple new classes of things you just can't do that they say, if videos are up, they will be taken down. Right. The other right. thing is the tougher part in terms of which videos get recommended. Now, this one and is they, interesting because this is kind of trying to take care of that problem, that notion of going down the rabbit hole. You you see one thing and it leads you to another video and another video. And before you know it, you're going crazy over what you're seeing. And a lot of people were having the experience that it was just always getting worse. Like no matter what you started for, the most engaging thing. And I think part of this is the way that YouTube's recommendations were designed, what keeps people watching. And so without creating values, without adding some morals in there, what you had was, well, conspiracy theories are way more engaging than, <laughs> right. you know, PBS videos. So what the algorithm learned over time is basically the most sensational related thing was most likely to be the most engaging next thing to keep you watching and watching longer. So they've done two things to try and improve this. One, they're starting to identify content as borderline. That is, it doesn't actually violate the terms of service. It's not something that should be banned, but it's also not good and not something that should be recommended. And it's not just YouTube doing this. We're also seeing Facebook really put a lot of emphasis on that. So that's one thing. And the other thing that is to bump up, to give a boost to what they're calling authoritative content. So something that came from a news station, for example, right. to actually balance borderline content with a more authoritative. So if you have anti-vax isn't probably a good example, because I think we're starting to see some platforms push away from having that entirely. But basically the response to a bad video being a good video. And this is really tough because it implies that they know what a bad video is and what a good video is. And to be honest, it's much harder than with a website. With a website, you get all kinds of signals. And this is what Sundar Pichai has told us. This is that there's just so much more that it knows about a web query than it does about videos. And that will change. But at the moment, that's where things are at. And these decisions are being made by algorithms or people, because this is kind of one of the discussions that happened with Facebook. They were outsourcing things. Nobody knew exactly how 
specific instances were being handled. So this is an algorithm thing deciding what a bad one is and what the more authoritative video will be. I think it's a mix. I think what you are seeing is some human intervention at the beginning to identify, you know, who some of these authoritative sources are. So I don't think the algorithm would on its own know what a news station is versus another thing. But I think over time, that gets added to the algorithm. So I think the answer is it's probably both. And the last thing that they did was tightening this ad revenue spigot. And this kind of leads us into this whole Steven Crowder situation. But what did they do as far as the ad revenue? There's basically two classes of YouTube creators. You know, I posted a video from Apple earlier this week. I put it up there. Anyone can watch it. I'm not making money. Axios isn't making money. YouTube's not making any money. I saw that. That monitor looks beautiful. It does. The second thing is whether making money off of it. So they are putting ads against it. These are called YouTube partners. And so they're saying, look, if you brush up against our hate speech rules, if you're posting borderline content, you're going to find yourself out of the program. This is the one that I think is most where the proof is in the pudding. Like it's easier to say that than to do that. This is where YouTube makes its money. A lot of its creators are very edgy. That's why they're successful. And so I, this one, I'm the first one I think they totally can do. I think they have, those are bright line policies. This content won't be allowed. You know, there'll still be some debate, but I think that one's easier to enforce. The next one, changing the algorithms, I think they definitely can change it. I think borderline content is still super hard even to identify. It's this third one that I think they're going to have the toughest time enforcing, which is turning away money, leaving money on the table and turning off popular YouTube creators who are pushing the envelope. And how did all of these new policy announcements butt up against what they were going through with Steven Crowder, who's a popular YouTuber? He has 3.8 million subscribers. This started as just unfortunate for YouTube timing of they were planning these announcements always for Wednesday. And on Tuesday, they decided they were going to respond to something they'd been looking at for a few days, which was of Fox content creators, own a journalist, Carlos Maza, having put together a list of, look, this is all the times that this guy, Steven Crowder, has attacked my sexuality, has attacked my ethnicity. When are you going to do something on it, YouTube? They looked into it. They spent a couple of days looking into it, in part because what Carlos had posted was kind of a supercut, if you will. It was a highlight reel of all the times over the last couple of years he'd been insulted. And what YouTube wanted to do was go back and look at every one of those videos. So they came out Tuesday and said, yeah, some of these comments are the word they used was hurtful, but this wasn't just an attack on him. This was a response, a critique of his views. And so it doesn't violate our policies and we're going to leave it up. So that was Tuesday afternoon. They got a lot of pushback on that, especially because the word they used is hurtful. And one of the terms of service is you can't make a deliberately hurtful video against another person. So they were using that same word, even though they felt there was a distinction. A lot of people felt it was a distinction without a difference. Wednesday, they announced these policy changes. And then they're still getting outrage and and outcry actually from both sides on the Steven Crowder thing. And they announced they're going to demonetize. So that third policy area, even though it wasn't related to the new policy change, they said, we're going to suspend him from this program under which people can make money. And so here you're taking a very popular YouTube creator with, as you mentioned, millions of followers and saying, at least for a while, you're not going to get monetized. Wow. I mean, and that's the hardest part, as you mentioned, the implementation of this and and how it really is all going to play out. Who's going to make the loudest noise? And then what's the reaction going to be to when something happens? So, I mean, it's great that they're tightening these policies, but yeah, it's really going to, it is a minefield that they're stepping into with just how they react to each individual instance 
of something going on because people are going to go crazy and, and make a fuss about something that they care mostly about. So we'll have to keep monitoring that one. Ina Freed, Chief Technology Correspondent for Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for this week. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. <laughs>